Well, this morning we're going to begin the book of Exodus. So let's go to Exodus chapter 1, and I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 14, and then we're going to pray briefly. Exodus chapter 1. If you're newer to the scriptures, it's the second book in the Bible. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithon and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your purpose is absolutely invincible And you are working out your plan, even though it often appears disorienting and concerning and very strange to us. We thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that you're the God of history. We thank you that you're working in all things and through all things for our good as your people and your ultimate glory. Encourage us with this word today. Reorient our minds to what is true. Grip our hearts with ultimate reality. Help us to see you seated on your throne, high and exalted. Help us to know that you are a God who is absolutely trustworthy. And encourage our hearts this day with your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm really excited to get into uh, Exodus with you this morning. We're going to be in this book a while. I don't know how long. It'll be at least a year. Um, The book of Exodus is an absolutely staggering, wonderful book. And... In fact, it is the, really the Romans of the Old Testament. You think about Romans being such a pivotal book in the New Testament. Well, Exodus is really that for the Old Testament. It is a, a paradigm-shaping book for the understanding of the entire Bible. If you understand Exodus, you understand the Bible because over and over again, whether it be in the later historical books of the Old Testament or the prophets or the Psalms or the New Testament... It just makes sense when you understand Exodus. And so Exodus really becomes the background of the entire Bible and the the lens through which God's redemption is best understood. So really looking forward to getting into this with you. Hope it will be a helpful book. I want to give you three reasons up front why I think Exodus will be a particularly helpful study for us. Here's the first one. Exodus is a theological book. Theological just means God. It has to do with God and who God is. And as we study the biblical history that's in the book of Exodus, we discover that the real hero of the story is God. 
that God is the one who reveals himself to Moses as the great I am. God is the one who hears the cries of his people and delivers them from bondage and takes pity on them in their suffering and raises up a deliverer to save them. God is the one who visits the plagues on Egypt, who divides the sea and who drowns Pharaoh's army. God is the one who provides bread from heaven and water from the rock. God is the one who gives the law covenant on the mountain and fills the tabernacle with his glory. From beginning to end, Exodus is a God-centered book. Think about what we've been thinking about in recent months together as a church. We walk through in the fall for John's first letter. And so much of that letter was focused on relationship with God and knowing God. Exodus serves us so well by helping us come in contact with this God and know him as he really is. To read Exodus, therefore, is to encounter God. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God reveals himself to Moses saying, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God reveals himself to us as the God who is. So when the biblical writers recall Exodus, they rarely, this is an interesting note, they rarely mention Moses at all. In fact, most of the time, they speak of the wonders of God. And so this gives us a hint as to how the Old Testament writers thought about Exodus and how we as New Covenant Christians should think about Exodus. We are to pay attention throughout this book to what it shows us and tells us about the character of God. Second, Exodus is a Christological book. That is, it's focused on Christ. Well, in one way or another, as we've reminded you repeatedly, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the whole Bible is about Jesus Christ in one way or another. And the Bible also says that after the resurrection, when Jesus talked with his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Notice what he said there, beginning with Moses. That includes not just the book of Exodus, but the larger five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that are written by Moses and that lay the foundation for the entire Bible. Exodus is the second book in that series of five. But notice Jesus says in Luke 24 that beginning with Moses, he explained to those strangers on the road to Emmaus all that was in the scriptures concerning himself. So obviously Exodus is included there, and Exodus is a book that shows us things about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, the brother of Jesus, went so far in his letter as to tell his readers in Jude verse 5 that Jesus delivered his people out of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? When Jude, the earthly brother of Jesus, thinks about the Exodus account, he thinks about it in relationship to Jesus Christ as the one who delivered his people out of Egypt. In many ways, the book of Exodus sets the pattern for us for understanding the life of Christ. Think about this with me. Like Moses, Jesus was born to be a savior and was rescued from his enemies at birth. We'll consider that more next week. He had a sojourn in Egypt, for it's written in Hosea chapter 11 and then restated, requoted in Matthew chapter 2, out of Egypt I called my son. And like the children of Israel, Jesus passed through the waters of baptism And like the Israelites who wandered in the desert for 40 years, Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days. And upon his return, he went to the mountain to give the law in Matthew 5 through 7. 
Think about that. The first five chapters, really the first seven chapters of the book of Matthew is Christ recapitulating the story of Israel. He's brought out of Egypt. He passes through the waters. He goes into the wilderness. He heads up a mountain. That's not accidental. That's intentional. That's telling you that Jesus Christ is the greater Moses who has come to deliver God's people from their ultimate slavery to sin. And just as the book of Exodus reminds us of the life of Christ, so it also teaches us about the death of Christ. P.T. reminded me of this several weeks ago when we were talking about the book of Exodus. He reminded me of Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31, where Luke records the account of Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. Remember, he's standing there with Moses and Elijah. And it's interesting that Luke says in Luke chapter 9, verse 30 and 31, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Do you know what that word departure is in Greek? Exodon. They spoke of his exodus, which was to come, referring to his death. So Luke thinks about the exodus as referring to the crucifixion and resurrection, when Jesus would pass through the deep waters of death to deliver his people from their bondage to sin and take them to glory land. So this explains why Jesus was crucified at Passover. He was the Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5-7. He was the lamb of God, John 1-29, who came to take away the sins of the world. So the book of Exodus is a tremendous Christological book. We are going to learn a lot about Jesus as we journey through the book of Exodus. Thirdly and finally... Exodus is a practical book. It's a very practical book. When the Apostle Paul wanted to instruct the Corinthians to persevere in the faith, do you know what he chose to remind them of? The Exodus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all drank the same They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And then he concluded by saying in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, these things, that is the exodus, happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings to us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. In other words, Paul was saying that what happened to them back then was written down for us today that we might learn from their example. Exodus is intended for our spiritual benefit. It's intended to be an intensely practical book. Think about this. As you trace your own spiritual journey, is it not patterned after the book of Exodus? This is why I called this series Our Story, because it's not just the story of God's people back then. It's part of our family history, and it's a part of our testimony now. Because what the Israelites needed is exactly what we needed. We need a liberator, a God to save us from slavery, a God who will destroy our enemies. We need a provider, a God to feed us bread from heaven and water from the rock. We need a lawgiver, a God to command us how to live and how to love and how to serve him. And we need a friend who will stay with us day and night forever. And brothers and sisters, we have that in our God. The God of the Exodus is your God. Exodus also reminds us of our mission. 
as God's people. As Christopher Wright writes, an Exodus-shaped redemption demands an Exodus-shaped mission. What does he mean by that? He means like Israel, we are saved from something for something. What are you saved from? Well, Israel was saved from slave, physical slavery. We are saved from spiritual slavery to sin. To what end? For what reason? That we might worship God and witness for God. That's what Israel was called out of Egypt for, and that is what we are called out of slavery to sin for. To live for God, to worship Him, and to witness for Him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter picks up the Exodus language and applies it to us as the church when he says, you are a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, Exodus is a theological book, it's a Christological book, and it's a practical book, which means it's worth our time. And I hope that you'll eagerly enter in engaging with this story and by God's grace let it change you and shape you forever. So we're going to get into the book this morning. That was all intro. For, uh, in Exodus 1 verses 1 through 14, I want to talk about two points and then I'm going to apply it in three ways. Two points. First point, 1 through 7, we're going to look at the blessed multiplication of the Israelites. And then secondly, in verses 8 through 14, we're going to look at the bitter oppression of the Israelites and apply that to us in various ways. So first of all, let's look at the blessed multiplication of the Israelites. I'm not going to reread the text, but I want you to notice verses 1 through 7 again. Verses 1 through 7 begin by anchoring us in the book of Genesis, right? We spent 14, 15 weeks last year journeying through Exodus, or sorry, Genesis 36, 36 or so through Exodus, or Genesis 50. I'm going to say that all the time. Genesis, Exodus, because I've just, we just finished going through part of Genesis. So just bear with me on that. Genesis 36 through 50, in the life of Joseph, where we left the story, right? And I'm not going to remind you of all that we talked about when we talked about the life of Joseph. Surely you remember most of that. But at the end of the story, in Genesis 50, Joseph is dying, is die, has died. Jacob has died. All the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, they've all died. And so what's left is the people in Egypt growing. Now, what we see, though, is what God is up to. We see that Israel continued to increase, just as God had promised, right? God had promised back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, when he commanded the image of God at that time, Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then that promise is restated to Noah, and that promise and purpose is restated to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And ultimately, God is bringing, despite many setbacks, his providential purpose to fruition. He is bringing a full nation into existence from a tiny family. This is God's purpose, and this is God's plan. Ultimately, that this family would serve as the womb through which Jesus Christ would come, that the Messiah would be born into the world. But we're back in the second part of the Bible here, the second book of the Bible, and just getting this plan rolling. But I want you to appreciate that God is blessing his people and God is multiplying his people. And notice verse 7, Israel were fruitful, they increased greatly, they multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong, and the land was filled with them. This is just 
language that's mounting about God's blessing of these people in spite of the fact that all their heroes are dead. All the patriarchs are gone, but God's alive. We've got lessons for that later on. Have you read the Bible long enough to know that the man goes in the ground, the mission goes on? I'm going in the ground one day, we're all going in the ground one day, mission moves on. God's mission is dependent on no man. It's dependent on himself alone. And what we see here is God is blessing his people, increasing his people, making his people fruitful, multiplying them, causing them to grow exceedingly, and filling the land. Now, I just want to make an application here related to reproduction, human reproduction. I think this is interesting. Do you notice that throughout the book of Genesis and right here in Exodus chapter 1, God makes his, marks his blessing of people with the fact that they physically reproduce? One of God's ways of blessing the earth is by people having children. Now, some of you sisters have no doubt read the book, and some of our sisters who are expecting have, are no doubt getting the book, uh, what you expect when you're expecting, right? It is the holy grail of prenatal, everything to know, you need to know before you have a kid. We read it before we had our children as well. But I read another book a few years ago called What to Expect When No One's Expecting. And it's about the falling birth rate in America and across the globe. I'll just give you a few stats from that book. In 1979, just 30 year, 40 years ago, the world's fertility rate was 6.0. Now, you need a fertility rate of 2.1 to replace yourself. That's one woman having 2.0, around two children. Globally, it's currently 2.52, and it's rapidly falling. America's fertility rate is about the highest in the Western world at 1.93, but notice that's still well below the replacement rate. Now, secular Americans, those who would have no religious affiliation, uh, have a fertility rate of 1.66 compared with a rate of 2.3 and 2.2 for those who identify as observant Catholics or Protestants. Surveys show that 21% of non-religious Americans want to have three or more children, but this number goes up to 36% for Protestants, and when you look at those who attend church every week, 41% say that three or more children is ideal. Now, why is that? Because God's people know that kids are a blessing. God's people know that children are a blessing. In the not-too-distant future, the only couples that will be replacing themselves may be religious couples. Now, the basic reason that people stop having children is because they've come to see them as somewhat of a liability rather than a source of hope. For the people of Israel, they were a source of hope. For many in our country, they are a liability. There are large cities in the United States with more dogs than children, and that's nothing to say about dogs. Dogs are wonderful. In places where dogs are treated sometimes better than children are. Children are seen as a liability. They cost a lot of money, they take a lot of time, and they prevent you from doing a lot of cool things that you want to do. So instead of a source of hope for the next generation, hope for what God might do, through and with these children, hope for an image bearer who is reflecting the glory of God, we see them as a culture, as a liability. Now, my point is not to lay down 
some absolute prescription for every one of you about how many children you should have or what, you know, you should at least have 2.1. Good grief, you're supposed to be replacing yourself. Don't you know that, selfish person? No, that's not the point. That's not the reason I'm giving you statistics. But surely, if we're thinking biblically, we must understand and appreciate at the heart. And here's my point. Children are a blessing. Children are a blessing. To be multiplying children as God's people is to be experiencing the blessing and the promise of God. So if you look at this world and you say, oh man, it's really going bad. We're really going bad here. You know, things are trending downward and we're not, you know, we don't occupy as much cultural space and influence as we once did. What am I going to do about this world and this culture? And you're just overwhelmed? Here's one thing you can do. That's a pretty good thing. Have a biblical family. Have a biblical family. Have children. Adopt children. Foster children. Take care of those grandbabies. And raise them up to follow Jesus. That bodes well for 100 years from now, if Jesus tarries. There may be no simpler or more important thing you can do in all the world. To multiply is not only a biblical mandate, it's a divine blessing. So let's embrace it as such. So that's point number one. That's the blessed multiplication of the Israelites. Point number two, let's look at the bitter oppression of the Israelites. This multiplication, while a blessing for the people of Israel, was a problem for Pharaoh. And something he was none too happy about. He was fine with them being a little family or a clan of many families. But when they started multiplying the way they were multiplying... And they started growing the way they were growing, and the influence and the strength of their, of their tribe was increasing. Pharaoh got very mad about it and upset and disheartened and concerned. Look at verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, that's a very important fact, right? Because Joseph was treated so well in Egypt by the Pharaoh in his day because of what the Pharaoh in his day observed was accomplished through Joseph for not just the blessing of God's people, but the blessing of the people of Egypt. He saw the advantage of having that right-hand man on his side. But this Pharaoh doesn't have a clue who Joseph is, doesn't know anything about him, and all he sees is a bunch of non-Egyptians growing in Egypt, and they could pose a threat to their way of life. Notice in verse 9 he says, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, there's a, this new pharaoh is particularly leery of foreigners. Whatever the case, he sounds the alarm, and he says, we're about to be overrun with strangers. Now, I've talked about some conservative concerns this morning, like reproduction, and next week, I'm going to talk about abortion, likely, as we deal with the Egyptian midwives and the story that's going on there. So I'm definitely going to say some things about that. So why not just talk about a few other things that get pastors fired or reformed convictional Christians labeled as liberal, but that are biblical concerns and biblical values that are not the property of Democrats or progressivism, that are the property of the Bible, and that includes things like immigration and slavery. Now listen, 
before I say anything, I want you to hear me. No one political party has a corner on biblical faithfulness. Do you believe that? No one political party has an absolute corner on every faithful representation of the values of the kingdom of God. We don't bow down to a golden calf, and we certainly don't bow down to a golden donkey or a golden elephant either. We worship a lamb. We are in a third, completely different, unique class. Our citizenship is not in this world, even though we care about this world. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there. His kingdom is not of this world. So let me say it. A boldly partisan Christian, that is one who equates his preferred political party with every expression of kingdom values, is a contradiction in terms. I want to say that again. A boldly partisan Christian, one who equates his preferred biblical party, whatever your preference is, it's okay in this church. But if you prefer, if your preferred political party is equated with every expression, every single expression of kingdom values, that's a contradiction in terms. Because his kingdom is not of this world. And therefore, there are places where his values can be reflected in various spheres of our society. But let me talk about, say a word about immigration. Now, up front, first of all, the Israelites were viewed as a threat to national security. The treatment of the Israelites by Pharaoh is a chilling reminder of how easily one group of people may turn against another, harshly exploiting them under the guise of national interest. Now, just to be clear, what we see here in Exodus is not identical to all the issues that we're facing in our country. And my main point in raising this is not to address all of those issues. The Israelites were there legally. They had been given the right to have a certain land. And this new Pharaoh has ascended to power and he's reneging on his promise. Okay? So it's a, it's a different situation. They're not identical. Certainly, and hear me here, a country has a right to enforce its own laws and maintain just border policy and protect its citizens. But what I'm talking about is the heart, not the actions. I'm talking about the heart first. At the heart level, whatever sort of candidate we're going to vote for, whatever sort of policy you think is best, we can debate about that. And God's people um, can come to dif different, agree or different perspectives on that. But my point this morning is just this, simply. We do not want to sound like Pharaoh. He's not a model here for how to think about power. We don't want to have the sort of hard attitude that looks out and sees foreigners and thinks, they're not like us, they don't sound like us, they don't look like us, they're dangerous, we'll be overrun, we got to get them out. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about policies, I'm not talking about the best way forward, I'm talking about a heart that looks at people and despises them. A despicable attitude toward the image of God, which I think Aiden had something to say about in his testimony this morning. Christians and politicians can argue about how to best handle immigration. There's no doubt more than one way that Christian principles can be applied there. But I'm talking about the level of our heart. Surely we do not want to end up sounding like this Pharaoh, the sort of person that looks out and says, if somebody has a little bit of a different accent, a little bit of different skin, I think they're a little nasty, dirty, and dangerous. I don't want any of them here. Surely we as Christians must have a better attitude 
as fair, than Pharaoh, despite having differing perspectives on whatever policy may be necessary. Is everybody ready to fire me now? Let's talk about slavery. Look at chapter 1, verse 11 through 14. This is what, he, this is what results from his uh, desire to be in absolute sovereign power and control. He wants to drive all the people of Israel into slavery, oppress them so that somehow they will, their multiplication will be stopped and that they will cease growing and that as a result of that, they will fail to multiply and eventually either be brought under sufficient control or begin wanting to die out. So we see in verse 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, look at what God's doing. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So he enslaves them to hard tasks involving building storage cities for him So, in, in hopes that this oppression will lead to a lack of multiplication. What we see here is a form of slavery. That's the way Moses describes it. Verse 13, they were made to work as slaves. Verse 14, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, lest we think that slavery is an old issue or something that is just in biblical history or is just in early American history, there is slavery going on today. Do you know that there are more slaves in history now than there have been ever been in the history of the world. There are estimates by the United Nations and the International Justice Mission of nearly 40 million people today in some form of slavery. Human trafficking is the second largest organized crime in the world. Slavery is a multi-billion dollar industry with human trafficking generating around $150 billion annually. And this human trafficking takes on many forms. I'll give you a few of them. The first is domestic servitude, forced domestic servitude, where employees are working in private homes and forced or coerced into serving and or fraudulently convinced that they have no option to leave. And then there's forced labor, which is where human beings, similar to what's going on here with the Israelites, where human beings are forced to work under the threat of violence and for no pay. And these slaves are treated as property and exploited to create a product for commercial sale. There's child labor, which is also what's going on here in Egypt, where slave owners prey upon the poor and weak, and one in four victims of forced labor are children. There's bonded labor, which is individuals that are compelled to work in order to repay a debt and unable to leave until the debt is repaid. It's the most common form of enslavement in the world. Then there's forced marriage, where women and children are forced to marry another without their consent and against their will. And then perhaps most well-known to us is the problem of sex trafficking, where women, men, or children are forced into the commercial sex industry and held against their will by force, fraud, or coercion. According to Shared Hope International, the average age a girl enters the sex trade in the United States is 12 to 14 years old. Children are exploited through prostitution, and they were reportedly given a quota by their trafficker of 10 to 15 buyers per night. So utilizing a conservative estimate, 
a domestic minor sex trafficking victim who is rented with five different men per night for five nights per week for an average of five years would be raped 6,000 times during the course of her victimization through prostitution. And this industry also includes, though more voluntary, the entire pornography industry. This is a terrible plight upon our world. And it's an terrible injustice being done to image bearers of God. And we don't, I don't have all the answers to how that's best solved. We pray. We partner with organizations who are doing hard work. We live locally, faithfully, seeking to serve families in our community and fostering and adopting and caring and stepping into messy situations. I don't have all the answers to that. But we do know this. God is a God who cares for the oppressed. God is a God who loves those who are downtrodden and abused. If you can't get behind that, you cannot be a Christian. That is the story of the Bible. That is the story of Exodus. A God who cares about the oppression of people who are victimized and take advantage of and exploited by entities of power. Now, let me conclude with three applications. Um, and these are going to be just far more general to the, to the passage. Number one, beware of putting your trust in men. Beware of putting your trust in men. Whether it's the patriarchs with the Israelites who all died out, all the ones they looked up to, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, they all died. Or it's the Egyptians who looked to their pharaohs. Don't put your trust in men. All men die, God doesn't. So Joseph N. says, or Peter ends, the commentator on the book of Exodus, he wrote this almost 20 years ago, way before our political climate was what it was. He said, it seems that there are many in the church today who do not see the behind-the-scenes God of Exodus. For some, the very fate of the country depends on whether we have the right people in office. The spiritual character of, country, of our country seems to be determined more by the character of the new pharaoh we elect rather than the character of the ever-present God by whose command rulers rise and fall. All this is not to say, Peter says, that political involvement by Christians ought to be discouraged. In fact, it should be encouraged. Or that all earthly rulers are of equal merit. Rather, here's the reality. God's presence is in the lives of all of God's people, and that does not ultimately depend on who is serving in power. God is the one who is ultimately in control here. He's sovereign over everything that's happening in this, among these refugees here in, in Egypt, and he's sovereign over everything that's happening in the life of this Pharaoh and what's going on. And so let's not put our trust in men. Let's be conscientious. Let's be prayerful. Absolutely. Let's vote our conscience, but never let us put our ultimate trust or confidence in any man. Number two, nothing can thwart the plans and purposes of God. Nothing can thwart the plans and purposes of God. I want you to turn back with me one, one little place here to Genesis, or Genesis chapter 15. So go back, hold your finger in Exodus 1, we'll come right back, and go to Genesis chapter 15. And I want you to see how God foretold all of this before it ever happened. He knew this was coming. It didn't surprise him. And so I want you to be encouraged this morning by what God told Abram hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the Exodus ever took place. 
Look at Exodus 15, verses 12 through 16. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and deep darkness, great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. They were brought out 430. Amazing detail. Verse 14, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see what God foretold to Abram? That his people would sojourn in a land that is not theirs, referring to Egypt, and they would be there for 400 years before God delivered them. And that is exactly what we see happening here. God is accomplishing his purpose, and nothing can thwart the plan of God. No one's going to stop Egypt from, or sorry, no one's going to stop Israel from multiplying, even the powers of Egypt. They are not going to be able to snuff out God's plan. God's people are oppressed. God's people multiply. God's people are afflicted. God's people grow. God's people are attempted to be snuffed out. They blow up and grow and grow and grow and grow because we dare not fight against the purposes of God. God is making a people for himself, and though their origins are very small and humble, he will accomplish his purpose. Listen, how very easy it would have been for the people of God in that day in bondage, in Egypt, for 430 years to question whether God would ever, ever, ever get around to fulfilling his promises. But if they would have read and known his promises as they were originally promised, they would have known it's going to be a while. It's going to be a while. But God is going to fulfill his purpose. Brothers and sisters, the wheels of providence grind very slowly but they grind exceedingly small. How often does God sow the seeds of redemption in the seemingly barren soil of despair? When you are at your lowest, when you feel like you can't take another breath, when you feel like you can't take another step, God is nearer to you than you even realize. That's the lesson we learn from this that the seeds of redemption are found in the barren soil of despair. How often does our God snatch victory right out of the jaws of defeat? Jesus in a tomb. He's dead. He's gone. He's not coming back. Wait and see the salvation of the Lord as he rescues victory out of the jaws of death. This is our God. This is the way our God works. The light is brightest when it's the darkest. Number three, and finally, God's plans are often mixed with pain for God's people, so we have to trust him. Listen, if you thought becoming a Christian means you're free forever from all pain, I've got news for you. Your pain's just started. There is much, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22, and that includes us. Many tribulations. God is working a good plan, brothers and sisters, but rarely is that plan playing out or will it play out the way we think it will. We need to embrace mystery 
and we need to embrace the confusing and often disorienting perspective we will have of God and his ways. In a helpful book called Why Does It Have to Hurt, Dan McCartney notes the following. He said, quote, God saw the suffering of his people and then delivered them. But why did he allow the suffering to happen in the first place? Could he not rather have simply prevented it? Why did he say to Abram, you're going to have to sojourn in a land that isn't yours for 430, 400 years, and then I'm going to bring you out. Can't all that be avoided? Why do we got to do that, God? Dan continues by raising another question. He says, if he had done so, would the Israelites have ever desired to leave Egypt? It was hard enough to get them to leave even when they were suffering. By enslaving the Israelites, he made them long for the very thing he was trying to prevent, freedom in a new land. This teaches us an important lesson about our own spiritual pilgrimage. Suffering helps us look for our Savior. If we never have any trouble along the journey, we never have any reason to long for heaven. Like the Israelites, we need the house of bondage to drive us to the promised land. Dan McCartney concludes, he says, It's hard enough for us to leave aside the treasures of this evil world, even though we suffer in it. How much harder is it for us to desire the new heavens and the new earth when our lives here are so comfortable? It's a great, severe mercy of God that he shakes us, that he afflicts us, that he sends pain into our lives to ratchet up our hope and longing for him and eternity. John Newton got this right, and John Newton knew this. Remember John Newton, the great hymn writer, wrote Amazing Grace. He also wrote another hymn, which some of you will know, and I want to quote it for you, and we're going to conclude. He knew this very thing, that God's plan can't be stopped, but it often includes pain for us as God's people, and that pain will be disorienting and confusing, and we won't have all our answers, and we won't know why, but we do know that part of that pain is meant to free us from our enslavement to the desires of this life so that we might set our hope in the world to come. Here's the hymn. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. A great prayer. T'was he who taught us thus to pray and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul at every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed All the fair designs I schemed blasted my gourds and laid me low. That needs an explanation. That's old language. What's a blasted gourd? Think Jonah 4, right? Jonah's sitting under the tree. He's very depressed and and downcast. And God causes the plant, the gourd, to grow up. And God knocks it out, takes it out, takes out his comfort. That's what Newton is alluding to here. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. 
Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Interesting, he uses the worm analogy, which is the same thing that was used to eat the plant in Jonah 4. Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. Hard lesson, but oh, if it gives us more of him. Oh, if it gives us more of our God, then we should welcome it as painful and disorienting as it may be. All that he takes, Jesus will repay. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to dive into this magnum opus in many ways of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. What an amazing, true story it is of how you have made yourself known as the God who is and as the God of your people. Thank you that you are our God. Thank you that you have delivered us out of slavery to sin. And you have ransomed us through the blood of a lamb and redeemed us and made us your own that we might be set free from sin and brought in to a glorious space where we would be worshipers and witnesses for you. We acknowledge, God, that we are in the wilderness right now, that we are walking by faith, receiving daily manna from you, looking for the promised land. And we pray that you would fix our eyes on that hill fix our eyes to that eastern sky where one day our Lord Jesus will split it and on a white horse will ride in triumph to create the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Help us to ever long for that. Do whatever it must be done in our lives to increase our hunger for heaven. May we never, ever, ever, ever outgrow our love for you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.